Some call it bootlegging. Some call it racketeering. I call it a business. They say I violate the prohibition law. Who doesn't? All I ever did was sell beer and whiskey to our best people. All I ever did was to supply a demand that was pretty popular. Why, the very guys that made my trade good are the ones that yell loudest at me. Some of the leading judges use the stuff. They talk about me not being on the legitimate. Nobody's on the legit. Al Capone. Hello, welcome to American Moments. I'm Adam. This is Matt. And today we are going to be covering the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Really, really nice take on, on Valentine's Day. <laughs> right. All <laughs> well, the love involved in that. Wonder how the greeting card companies feel about that. <laughs> yeah. No, in all seriousness, this was a pivotal moment in America, not only from an organized crime standpoint, but um, in the greater context of prohibition which is just a bizarre topic for me. And that's how we picked this, is I just look back at Prohibition and look at the alcohol-centric world we live in now, and I just look back, like, how did this happen? How did, how did America get there? So we're going to cover the same Valentine's Day Massacre, which is obviously a big deal, but we're also going to dive into Prohibition as it was campaigned for, as it was uh, lobbied for, and how it was ratified, and air quotes, implemented and enforced. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, this is, as you said, this is, it's just a, such an interesting slice of American history. The Prohibition area, not only the actual prohibition of the sale of liquor itself, but everything that came out of it. All the byproducts, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Americans are going to get their drinks, whether Congress wants them to or not. Right. Yeah. But to start the story, we have to go all the way back to the Mayflower. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, Americans are kind of big booze bags. Always have been. Yeah, always have been. So... The Puritans, when they came over, the ship that brought them over had more than 10,000 gallons of wine and carried three times more beer than water. Our founding fathers were humongous. Good on them. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, they all were really big drinkers. John Adams started every day with a hard cider. James Madison consumed a pint of whiskey every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, George Washington had a, a still on his property. The Army used to have a whiskey ration. And that was part of just the daily rations that the, the, the soldiers would have. So as we start drinking more as a country, temperance movements start to, to spring up. Because, as I said, you know, Americans just have this reputation for being drunk all the time. There, there were some funny ones that, that kind of started up. There was a, a physician named Benjamin Rush whose way of getting people off of whiskey became mixing laudanum and wine, which laudanum is an opiate. And trying to get them off whiskey that way. Right. Obviously, that didn't move. But some serious movements start taking shape in the 1840s. One thing to mention is we obviously are we're a society that drank a lot of alcohol. But back at the founding of our, of our country, um, there was a dichotomy there that it was a sin to drink. You know, I mean, you see... Just along the Quakers or... or well, you yeah. I mean, for example, you see the Whiskey Rebellion of Western Pennsylvania that was in like 1750, I think, 1760. Um, and it was a tax, a sin tax on people that bought whiskey. Mm-hmm. While we were a society that drank a lot, there was that stigma that mm-hmm. was associated with it that it's evil and it's a sin. Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned the temperance movement start. 
it starts as most of these movements do with like let's educate let's help save you and then by mm-hmm. the time prohibition comes around it becomes like a, a rabid battle but the washington movement was founded in 1840 and it was really america's first prohibition society in baltimore six habitual drinkers I, and i'm i'm just picturing a, a <laughs> bunch of buddies who who just show up at the bar every day and one of them says you know what i've had it with this so that's kind of what happened. These guys are at the bar together, and they decided to give it up. They didn't advocate for changes in laws, um, which is obviously different than what happened later. Mm-hmm. All they asked for was a pledge of abstinence. So they would go around, and, I, and again, I'm just picturing this guy who just came off Skid Row going around asking other drunks not to drink with him. And it really just kind of became a lot of fire and brimstone speeches, things like that. You know, and Adam, just just to add to kind of the setting behind that is – in 1830, the, the on average um, Americans consumed 1.7 bottles of hard liquor per week, which is three times the amount consumed today. Yeah. So it gives you an idea of where where we were. Yeah, that's a lot. Yep. And the uh, the quality is is varied, so it it can be a lot stronger than the stuff that that mm-hmm. we drink today. So this first temperance movement. It was kind of successful, but a lot of people backslid. And uh, even the leader of the movement, John Bartholomew Gao, uh, backslid and created a scandal when he was found in a brothel after a six-day bender. <laughs> so you really kind of get to – there's a lot of people who are realizing that the actual problem is the booze itself, not the way a man interacts with it. Right. Our, our famous friend P.T. Barnum was a, a famous advocate. His quote was, prohibition is our watchword. And he would produce plays that promoted morality and decried drinking. Things like drunkard and the fallen sword. So the, then the states tried to, to start get into it, getting into it on their own. Maine passed the first prohibitory law in 1851 and imprisoned anyone who sold or produced liquor. It caused mob violence, most prominently among Irish Americans. You, you can't take the booze away from the Irish. Nope. They're just not going to happen. As that. an Irish man, yeah. I understand. Yeah, I saw you twitch a little bit when I mentioned <laughs> that. Yep. This is, is going to be a tough topic for you, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Yeah. In all seriousness, uh, the demographics of the Northeast are obviously very much Irish American, so that did not go over very well. Correct. Um, the Republican Party was already the party of abolitionism. Picking prohibition as well seemed to many Republican leaders as a way to divide the party, so they didn't really support it. Um, you know, again, we think of the Republican Party today as the GOP, but back then they were really the radical party. Mm-hmm. It was the party of Lincoln, the radical Republicans. Uh, the party back then was was very radical and very, very progressive, by, you know, as we would look back today. I mean, we focus on the booze a lot, but one of the most interesting parts of this story to me was the women's suffrage movement. Right. Yeah. And did you know that it, that basically the women's suffrage movement, I, in my opinion, really fueled prohibition and pushed it over the finish line? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of that was through the, what was it, the women's Christian temperance movement that, yes, was, that, was, exactly. that was born from that. Yeah. Well, we'll get there in a minute. Yeah. But put yourself back in the time. Today, as a woman, you have safety nets. <laughs> as a woman. Yes, as, as a woman, I'm I'm having my yaya sisterhood moment here. Okay, okay. so just just let me roll and don't look at me like that. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, obviously women did not have the right to vote. Okay, that that's a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Women did not have the support from society uh, if you were being battered, if you wanted to get out of a bad marriage, things like that. Women really didn't have a lot right. of options. Right. They were they were property. They weren't called property, but they were basically property. So yep. if you were a woman and you were in an abusive marriage, you could leave the marriage. 
But the odds of you getting rights to your children or getting rights you know, to your property mm-hmm. were very, very minimal. So we, we need to talk about taverns and saloons, and we'll, we'll get there in a, in a moment. But when, when we talk about taverns and saloons, we're not talking about Buffalo Wild Wings. We're not talking about us going and having 20 taps <laughs> of greatest craft brew of the area. We're talking about dark, nasty places where prostitution was rampant. You weren't really sure what was in the brown bottle. Um, right. A lot of men would go there and just disappear. And, you know, it would really re- put stress on their families oh, for, for, sure. for obvious reasons. Refer um, to the jungle. Yes, I'm actually getting there. Um, <laughs> the suffrage movement began to be side-by-side movement with prohibition. Saloons, as I mentioned, are just horrible places. Men would go get drunk, go back to the establishments in the jungle, as you mentioned, that Up- Upton Sinclair outlined. There would be, quote-unquote, syphilis of the innocent, where men would bring home uh, diseases to their, wa- to their unsuspecting wives that, you know, after they had romps with prostitutes. At their most tame, uh, men would just get drunk. At its worst, men would become abusive, miss work, not plow the fields. Women had no rights to get out of the situation. They wanted to be able to divorce, own property, and all of this started with a vote. So there was there were some really fascinating ladies in doing research, and I, I would have loved to meet them in person because they just sounded like piss and vinegar. <laughs> One of them, uh, Eliza Thompson, also known as Mother Thompson, was the founder of the crusade that went after these tavern owners. And in 1874, liquor tax collections were down 300000 in one month. And what these ladies would do is they would go hmm. and just... That's amazing. Yeah, well, they would just go to these bars and sometimes ridicule, but a lot of times just go and pray for these guys. They would go talk to the proprietor of the establishment and say, mm-hmm. I'm trying to save you. And there's a couple of guys who actually closed their bars down. So she was very pure of heart and she kind of had a, the Mother Teresa. Hence um, the name. Yeah, exactly. So her successors became feminists like Susan B. Anthony and... A lot of these suffragettes were given a platform by the Prohibition movement. Susan B. Anthony was able to join forces with the likes of Francis Willard, who created a huge army of protesters under, as you mentioned before, the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, or WCTU. Their message altered from the crusade messaging, where they would be praying for the person having a drink or selling it, rather to the victims of the whole enterprise, mostly women and children. So it started out where, you know, we're going to go try to educate tavern owners. Mm-hmm. And then it very quickly shifted to, we are going to try to save people who are being hurt by the tavern owners. Yeah. Uh, so the, the women's Christian temperance movement really had two pillars. One was home protection. They published pictures of barely clothed women holding crying children, receiving word from the bank that their home was being foreclosed <laughs> on. I mean, yeah, I mean, propaganda is propaganda. propaganda exactly, right? yeah. You know, because their husbands skipped out on the payments and the, and the wife didn't even know about it. Right. The second was, quote, unquote, do everything, where they would take their energy and funnel it into a bunch of different areas like prison reform, kindergartens, etc. And this would eventually find kinship with the socialist movement as well. And I, I think this is kind of where the, the WCTU was a great organization, but mm-hmm. they started biting off more than they could chew, where the prohibitionists really just wanted to be focused on prohibition. The WCTU became a lot more aggressive in 1876, beginning to alter paintings of historical figures holding wine glasses. <laughs> so there's a famous picture of George Washington giving his officers a toast they're all drinking port uh-huh. that was retouched up and altered after the fact with a hat painted over the jug of Madeira and the wine glass simply painted over. 
So they, they're, le- they're literally going out and, and altering these paintings. It kind of reminds you of, of Russia, you know, when they used to take prominent party leaders out who fell out of favor with the right. party. Kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah, disappear. Yeah, these ladies aren't messing around, man. It's like 1984. Very, very much so. <laughs> um, but most importantly, they decided to appeal to children. Mary Henshit Hunt became a guerrilla warrior against liquor. In 1879, she used unions to help influence nation's school boards to influence children on the evils of liquor. This lady was a piece of work, and this is where, I mean, she she found power and just ran with it. In uh, 1881, she started lobbying the state legislatures. By 1884, Vermont, Pennsylvania, and New York had passed temperance education and monitoring laws. She got in a great position of power being able to approve school books for content in schools. She got in trouble eventually, though, because guess what she started doing? It's drinking liquor. Selling liquor. Well, well, she probably <laughs> was. I think that's the real story. No, she started taking bribes. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So right. so basically she's like, you know what? This book's kind of cool. It's on the borderline. But, it, you know, if you give me a payment, it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll, and it'll the, rise to the, the top. It started out kind of like that. She demanded lavish uh, accommodations, you know, for, for her tours and stuff like that. But f- finally the publishers just had it with her. But regardless, William Jennings Bryant, we all know him with his Cross the Gold speech, very socialist, uh, very into the Prohibition movement, mm-hmm. uh, credit her with doing the most of anyone to affect the passing of the 18th Amendment. And there was this other lady. This is my favorite. Her name was Carrie Nation. She was called Carrie Hatchet Nation. Do you want to know why she was called that? <laughs> why? She would go in and just dist- – She. I'm just picturing, again, imagine us all sitting around yeah. drinking – and some lady comes in with a hatchet and just starts destroying all the all the bottles of liquor. And, That's amazing. Yeah, and just destroying just the saloon. Imagine. Even getting arrested? No, they arrested Carrie. Carrie Nation stepped up and smashed one side of a plate glass window. We called them joints. We didn't call them saloons. Joints. Joints. She smashed one side, and I stepped up and smashed the other side. And the policemen who were watching us stepped up and arrested her. They ignored me, and I was furious. <laughs> well, how did you get to be discriminated against in this fashion? Well, how come they didn't arrest you? Well, I think they, I think the police knew that as soon as they took the leader, that the crowd would just kind of go home, you know. But I was furious, and my sister and I went in and did a little cigar smashing on the counter. <laughs> yes, Henry. I mean, like you're, you've had a rough day at work. You're having a beer, and this lady comes in wielding a hatchet and mm-hmm. just destroys the bar. I mean, uh, <laughs> but she was she was famous. Talk she used to do this day. everywhere. The most famous uh, incident was in Topeka, Kansas. In some senses, things were working though. Con- liquor consumption was down, but beer was up like a lot. So people were shifting. Yep. Um, in 1850, Americans drank 36 million gallons. In 1890, it was 855 million gallons. Immigration had a lot to do with it. There's a lot of instability in what was about to become Germany. A lot of German immigrants were coming over to America. Absolutely. The German Lutherans that had had migrated here, Mm -hmm. immigrated here, as well as uh, most of the Catholics, which were Irish and Catholic, were against this movement. I mean, their societies were full of drinking. Italy was full of wine drinkers. Germany was full of beer drinkers. Ireland was full of whiskey drinkers. Yeah. We'll get to this in a minute, but it gets really ugly as we approach World War One. Mm-hmm. So the stabilization of Europe sent droves of Germans to America, not only who consumed, but more importantly, knew how to make beer. 80% of saloon owners were first-generation Americans. That's unbelievable. 
So it's pretty amazing. So you have to picture the the way people are consuming are different. The what what they're consuming is different, and th- this was kind of becoming destabilizing to Americans. Saloons boomed from uh, one hundred thousand in the U.S. in eighteen seventy to three hundred thousand by nineteen hundred. These wow. weren't just places you could get a drink. That's in a lot good. of neighborhoods, new immigrants would find work there. A worker could take a bath or get a loan from the proprietor. When bar tabs needed to be paid, a lot of times local politicians would show up and offer to pay off loans, things like that. So yeah. not not to harp on the jungle again, but this really kind of goes back to— Well, it's to, the same time it's, period. It's the exact same time period. Yep. And these immigrants, you know, again, no safety nets. And, you know, a lot of them would go on benders. There was nowhere for them to go. So someone would pay your tab, but guess what we want in return? We want you to vote for our favorite politician, right. things like that. By the way, if you if we keep re- mentioning the jungle, if you haven't listened to it, <laughs> yeah. please refer to one of our you previous may, podcasts. You may want to check this out. Entitled The Jungle. <laughs> entitled. It's funny how all this stuff kind of links together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it because these guys just had, they were working terrible jobs and you know, you just yeah. want to drink at the end of the day. It was a rough life. Yeah, it, we really live in a time of silk slippers, right? Yeah. I mean, compared to these people, absolutely. And you're and you're going somewhere where you're just finding solace from your troubles for the day, and there's people trying to take advantage of you right and left. So you can see both based on the work conditions and things like that why people would go there all the time, take off some steam. But you can also see how the anti saloon league and the women's temperance unit focused on those places as places that needed to be eradicated. So at this point with the shift from liquor to beer, you begin to get the dialogue that liquor was evil, but that beer was quote unquote liquid bread. Adding fuel to the fire, Adolphus Bush, and if his name sounds familiar, it's because Budweiser is his creation. Mm -hmm. Adolphus Bush increased the freshness of beer using pasteurization. Scientists aren't sure how sugar turns into alcohol, but Pasteur thinks there's life involved. The scientist takes samples of beer from local breweries and studies them under his microscope. He looks at fresh beer and spoiled beer again and again. For over a year, he looks for living creatures that hurt or help the alcohol. Finally, a breakthrough. Pasteur finds a key difference between good beer and bad. Good beer is full of round yeast cells, and spoiled beer is swimming with long microbes. Pasteur heats the bad beer and finds something amazing. Heating the beer for only a few minutes kills the bad microbes. This simple technique becomes known as pasteurization and is soon adopted for beer and wine. So a lot of times you you would have local breweries, like you'd have you know the local Matt Martin Ale. You could have that in Denver, but you wouldn't have it in Omaha. Right. Because getting it there was impractical, but with pasteurization... It became a reality that you could move beer across state lines, and and at the same time, the national, the transcontinental railroad is finished. Yeah, nationalized beer, um, where everyone's it, getting the same thing. I know we've talked about all liquors, but mm-hmm. but Adam, to your point, that really turned the U.S. into a beer drinking society. Yeah, yeah. that's where the money was. Exactly, exactly. To that point, Adolphus produced thirty five thousand barrels of Budweiser in eighteen seventy five. By 1901, <laughs> it was over a million. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it is. But as, as the saloons start getting more and more 
established, they would subsidize saloons lavishly with decorations. So you go into these saloons and you think of the old saloons like in, in a like tombstone where they're really nice and they have the, you know, the, the brass taps and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, the saloon owners didn't buy that. The Budweiser rep would come in and he would he would offer to buy them all these things. But you know what? You're, I want you to sell Budweiser. Right. And then so the Budweiser guy would be on one corner and then the, the, the Pabst guy, if he lost that battle at that saloon, he would, he would start up a new saloon across the street mm-hmm. and do the same thing over there. So they would subsidize it, like I mentioned, with decorations, free lunches, and other perks. So it really becomes kind of a street fight, corner by corner, in yeah. the big cities. Not so much in the in the smaller towns, but New York was obviously ground zero for that. So beer became big business. Starting in 1875, one quarter of the revenue of the federal government was funded by beer and liquor revenues. Mm. And this gave brewers an ace in the hole mm-hmm. um, with, with government. Lots of power. Yeah, lots of power. Lots as the two sides, temperance on one side and the brewers on the other, politics became just harsh. Prohibition was divisive, and you were either wet or dry. In a lot of cases, politicians really had to pick sides. Senators were bribed. This was before they were elected by popular vote. Back then, you the state legislatures picked senators. So it was just was right. a huge uh, possibility for cronyism. Adolphus Bush would lead the anti-prohibition effort, founding committees among multiple breweries to attack prohibition in different states. They would fund the payment of, quote-unquote, poll taxes for minorities and other demographics that would vote for legal beer. They were able to block several dry candidates from taking office through underhanded means. And Adolphus Bush would not live to see prohibition. He, he died of cirrhosis of the liver in, in 1913, <laughs> <laughs> four years before prohibition uh, would, would come in. There's a lot of coalition building, and, it, and it's an ugly side of it. It is. A lot of politicians in the South specifically, they weren't necessarily dry candidates, but they were very racist. You have to, we're still in mm-hmm. the heart of Jim Crow law not only existing, but being firmed up and reinforced. A lot of these savvy politicians would go to wet candidates who really wanted to enforce segregation. If you help me with prohibition, we'll push these Jim Crow laws ahead. Right. So that was, that was a big deal in the South. <laughs> it's kind of funny because a lot of these politicians weren't necessarily against alcohol. They were against alcohol for the lower classes. You know, there's a quote where some politicians were dry because they sneered at the culture of drinking of the lower classes. Well, they thought it was perfectly fine for them to have their wine and goblets. Right. I don't want to make the U.S. sound unique here because there were other countries that were dowing with this. Sweden had issued drinking licenses, so you would have to get a permit to be able to drink. Iceland actually briefly passed prohibition, mm-hmm. and that really hurt the Spanish economy. So, you know, Iceland stopped importing Madeira. So it, it started a trade war between Spain and Iceland, and Spain stopped importing cod even from from within the u.s you've talked about so many things that have led to this but but a lot of it was state driven too i mean individually state driven yeah i mean kansas is a great example we're very much against and believed in prohibition that's kind of where it swelled from Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so we're kind of getting to the point where the wctu is doing a great job Mm -hmm. um but they're not on just the prohibition. They're, they're biting off so much more than they can chew. But, but they've kind of done their job because they've advanced the cause of this point. So in 1889, the ASL, or the Anti-Saloon League, was founded. As I mentioned, the ASL found the WTCU too broadly focused. Came, I, I kind of really refer to these guys as like the SEAL Team 6 of Prohibition, right? <laughs> they would snipe at like the one-tenth of a voter population that mm-hmm. could sway votes to squeak out a race. The real power, though, was in their finely tuned church apparatus.
putting two dollars of tax on whiskey, and they expect to realize three hundred million dollars. That means that the American people have got to buy and drink one hundred and fifty million gallons a year. They have put five dollars a barrel tax on beer. That means the people have got to buy and drink thirty-two million barrels of beer a year. It doesn't take the lawyer to figure out that if you do that, you take that much money out of legitimate channels of trade. You spend that much less for food and clothes and boots and shoes and education and automobiles. Oh, America didn't need rum. She needed righteousness. We don't need jags. We need Jesus. We don't need more drop. We need more of God. Fireandbrimstone.com, yep. right? So they controlled messaging in hundreds of churches. All it really came, came down to was organizing. These guys were just out, organized everyone. All the socialist causes didn't matter anymore. All that mattered was the abolition of alcohol. When Francis Willard died in, in 1898, the WCTU continued to grow, but the ASL gave the marching orders moving forward. So one of the most important people of the ASL was a, a gentleman by the name of Wayne Wheeler, who was a Republican. In 1902, he became the superintendent of the Anti-Saloon League. He was a master at seeing the intersections of shared interests where it would benefit prohibition. I mean, he could just look at, like, Neo in the Matrix, like, seeing uh, all the different forces coming. He was kind of <laughs> like that from a political perspective. He was mm-hmm. kind of like big data before big data, uh, except it was all in his head. Where a lot of previous efforts by the ASL were focused on education, he threw that away and focused on harsh combat of enemies of prohibition. His first <laughs> real victory was the defeat of anti-prohibition. This guy was very popular, by the way, and what makes it a big deal and, and then, you know, shows how powerful this guy was. The anti-prohibition governor, Myron T. Herrick of Ohio in 1906. Now, something else is happening in the meantime. As I mentioned, the uh, the brewers had had their kind of ace in the hole. They had the government by the balls a little bit because a lot of the federal government was funded by liquor and uh, beer taxes. But what mm-hmm. was passed right around this time? Federal income tax. That's right. That's right. So now you are losing the brewers and the liquor producers are losing their ace in the hole with the government. You have the ASL finally really getting organized. Then you have the income tax. So it's kind of a perfect storm of bad time for right. the saloon owners. There was a prohibition party at this time, but unlike other temperance movements, they would always focus on the, the prohibition party or the Green Party. Wheeler wanted nothing to do with this. He looked at Republicans and Democrats and said, how can I manipulate and control these people? He was the pure definition of power politics. He was the de facto leader of the Anti-Saloon League and wielded considerable political power. His former publicity secretary, had a great, Justin Stewart, had a great quote about him. Quote, Wayne B. Wheeler controlled six Congresses, dictated to two presidents of the United States, directed legislation in most of the states of the Union, picked the candidates for the more important elective state and federal offices, held a balance of power in both Republican and Democratic parties, distributed more patronage than any other men, supervised a federal bureau from outside without official authority, and was recognized by a friend and foe alike as the most masterful and powerful single individual in the United States, unquote. The other thing that made this very easy for him, you know what gerrymandering is, right? Mm-hmm. So so the party that's in control can alter the districts Absolutely. to benefit their party. We see it today. We see it today. It was a lot crazier back then. It was, it was very easy for him to manipulate elections and politicians. The other thing that really pushes this over 
over the edge was World War One. As you know, Franz Ferdinand was killed in 1914. America was trying to stay out of it. There was a lot of things like unlimited uh, submarine warfare that Germany was constantly trying to keep us out of the war by not doing that. But there's things like the Zimmerman telegram where they try to get Mexico to come in against us. Mm -hmm. Um, What most people don't realize is in World War II, it was very, very cut and dry, right? It wasn't the the case in World War I. There was a lot of German Americans. Right. I mean, we were an isolationist country. We, We very much were. But once that changed... World War One. This this became a nail in the coffin for, mm-hmm. for booze. Ironically, the ASL used the war as an issue to blame liquor and beer for just about everything. <laughs> Wheeler sent a letter to the president bemoaning the use of fuel and other war necessities by the brewers when our boys needed them over there in Europe. In my mind, this this quote really sums up the anti-Germanism at the time. Quote: We have German enemies in this country too. Reciting the names of the country's prominent brewing companies, it noted, the worst of all are Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz, and Miller. There's a something called the Babel Proclamation. Governor Harding of Iowa declared speaking German in public as illegal. Sauerkraut became liberty cabbage, uh, much like Freedom Fries later. <laughs> Freedom Fries of yeah. the 1800s. Yeah. Or Cin- 1900s. <laughs> Cincinnati's Berlin Street was renamed. Germanism became anti-American and wet. So the ASL was able to combine all mm-hmm. these issues. It had been found that Anheuser-Busch held millions in German war bonds. Right. That sounds horrible, but you have to remember, we didn't get into World War I until 1917. Adolphus Bush had been honored by the Kaiser, and uh, th- they had a bunch of German war bonds. But that found yeah. it, it didn't matter when he did it. It just sounded terrible. As a color commentary side note here, at the time, the Germans were the largest immigrant group in America. I mean, most of America was, at that point, built on on German immigrants. Yeah, absolutely. So as steam to get the movement passed uh, met resistance, Savvy Dries explained to tottering politicians, and and they had almost gotten it passed once before. I didn't cover that, but they stopped labeling it prohibition and started calling it quote-unquote submission, where we would let the states decide, right? So, But right. we had to pass this amendment so that, that the states could decide. How that ameliorated <laughs> concerns is beyond me, but it worked. There was a real disconnect between reality and the laws, States had gone dry before, and as we mentioned, and this is hysterical to me. In 1916, Washington had banned its state liquor, but allowed people to get permits to import from states. In Spokane County, there was 46,000 registered voters. Guess how many licenses were given out? 45,000. <laughs> uh, 30, 34,000. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. But, but again, people are voting differently than the way that they're acting. Right. And that's one of the fascinating things about this story to me. People are definitely voting differently than the way they're acting, but as you state, I mean, this is a one-issue topic. I mean, mm-hmm. this is one-issue vote. Yeah. So people vote on that one issue, d- whether or not they they act that way. Well, and, the, and they're not necessarily the, the individual voters are not voting on these. In a lot of cases, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's the state legislatures, and the ASL is behind all of this, right? So on December 17, 1917, the bill passed the House, and on the 18th, it passed the Senate. So in, in order to ratify any bill, three fourths of the states have to ratify it. The actual amendment read this, section one. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. Section two, the Congress and the states shall have concurrent power to enforce this. 
Section three, the article should be inoperative unless it has been ratified within seven years. So it's the first amendment to include an expiration date if, if it wasn't ratified. Hmm. So a street fight happens in every state. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed 36 states out of the then 48 to pass it. The ASL focus shifted to rural areas. I love this quote because this kind of explains Americans at the time, right? You obviously have the big melting pots in the cities, but this quote comes from a book, The Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Quote, if there was such a thing as an archetypal American in the 1910s, he or she lived in a middle-sized town, attended a Protestant church, and had a few generations of native-born ancestors interred in a nearby cemetery. Even if one ignored the predatory brewers and distillers, it would have been difficult for this average American to find someone to identify with on the wet side of the political ledger. Unquote. So they needed 36 states to ratify, and on January 16, 1919, Nebraska, of course, became the 36th state out of the 48 states to ratify. Now, while I love to pick on Nebraska, in reality, all the states save Connecticut and Rhode Island ratified it. Yeah. One little thing I want to talk to you about here, there is a myth that uh, is pretty prevalent. The Wets blamed the passage of the 18th Amendment on the 2 million soldiers being gone from voting mm-hmm. booths. I dug into this uh, into this a little bit more, and, and it's really a myth because you, you would have to assume that all the soldiers would have voted for that, which is very unlikely. And B, there, it was actually kind of looked at because of Woodrow Wilson's uh, war taxes uh, that were focused on beer. Mm-hmm. Buying alcohol was almost a patriotic act. That That's definitely a myth. So the clock is set, all right? As I mentioned in, in the in the actual amendment, they have a year to enact this. They have a th- basically a three-paragraph amendment. How are we going to enforce it? So there's mm-hmm. a there's something called the Volstead Act. And as you can imagine, this was just an absolute mess. What is alcoholic? What is not? Are we going to go after the guy with the still in his backyard making cider? All, all kind of right. things like that. First of all, the bill was vetoed by President uh, Wilson, uh, largely on technical grounds, because it also covered some wartime things. But his veto was overridden by the House. The three distinct purposes of the act were to prohibit intoxicating beverages, to regulate the manufacturer's sale, and and transportation, and to ensure an ample supply of alcohol and promote its use in scientific research. The act defined intoxicating liquor as anything more than half a percent of alcohol by volume and superseded all existing prohibition laws in states. So if, if you decided 3-2 beer was the limit here, that didn't matter. The right. federal government reigned now. They did provide an exception to cider and homemade fruit juices. And the 0.5% thing eventually was struck down, which effectively legalized home winemaking. How this worked is it wasn't illegal to consume it as long as you stockpiled right. enough before the ban came into effect. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, they were just going after the saloon owners and, and the beer makers. Other exceptions existed, such as whiskey being prescribed by doctors. Even when people were caught, it was rarely enforced. The act called for trials for anyone charged with an alcohol-related offense, and juries often failed to convict. Adam, just to add add another point there, you had said that one of the ways they got around it is doctors would Mm -hmm. prescribe whiskey. I mean, we see that today with another certain drug. Yeah, the parallels are amazing. I forget the statistics, but, you know, the number of doctors that prescribed whiskey expanded greatly. You know, almost every doctor was not prescribing it to allow people to buy this whiskey. The marijuana card of of old. Yep. (laughs) So uh, Prohibition came into force at midnight on January 17th, 1920. And the first documented uh, infringement occurred in Chicago on January seventeenth uh, at twelve fifty nine a.m. Uh, <laughs> according to police reports, six armed men stole one hundred thousand worth of medicinal whiskey from two freight train cars. 
it did have an impact. I mean, we're making fun of it. Estimated uh, alcohol consumption went down only by 30%. But most people uh, just buckled down and were ready to wait it out. Rich Americans would go to liquor stores and buy the entire liquor store stock and, and put it in their cellar. But that was great for the rich who had the time and resources to wait it out. But for most Americans, that wasn't an option. But right. they still wanted their drinks. We're going to get in now into how that happened. Absolutely. You know, and one thing to, to note, once this passed, the enforcement of it was weak. In the nation, there were only 1,500 agents set up to enforce prohibition. Initially, I mean, it's, it, it just was not enforced. People were not convinced the law was legitimate. But, you know, it created a black market that competed with our actual economy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this black market rose up and it it definitely affected our economy. Yeah. You know, as a result of this bootlegging developed. And if you don't know what bootlegging is, bootlegging is the illegal transport of alcohol. Now, that's important, illegal transport of alcohol, because prohibition didn't make consuming alcohol illegal. It meant transporting and selling Mm -hmm. alcohol illegal. So bootlegging came about out of this. Ships can't bring in the stuff fast enough to quench the great American thirst. Alky cooking and hideaway booze factories turns out raw whiskey on a mass production basis. But the customer is always told it's just off the boat. Between hooch and beer, the profits of bootlegging run into real dollars, tens of millions. Like any other business, it's thoroughly and efficiently organized, but with some additional complications. Business rivals are out to kill you, and the occupational hazard is hijacking. Gun barrels and beer barrels are a highly compatible combination. This increased crime and violence across the nation, and really nowhere more than Chicago itself. Before we delve into that crime, let's talk a little bit about Chicago at the time. Um, Chicago was really a poor city. A fourth of Chicagoans were unemployed. It was filled with immigrants, Irish, Italian, German, all immigrants that had come to Chicago in the hope of fulfilling the American dream. Some of them had, most of them had not. Most of them lived a poor lifestyle, and one-fourth, like as I mentioned, one-fourth of Chicago was unemployed. And again, there's no safety nets at this point. If you're unemployed and you're destitute, you're nowhere. Right. You're you're starving on the streets. Well, in... And you're starving on the streets, but what makes you feel better is getting drunk. So, I mean, alcohol was a huge part of Chicago, Mm -hmm. the Chicago lifestyle. And with the passage of Prohibition, um, there was a void. Where am I going to get this liquor? So, out of that comes organized crime. In in Chicago specifically, there were... There were two gangs for the two sides of Chicago, the north side and the south side. The north side was Irish, German, Polish... It was a little more established, I guess, well-to-do than the South Side. They were a heavy beer-drinking society, the North. North, mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've mentioned it already, but really Chicago was North and South Chicago, almost two different cities. You have the Cubs, you have the White Sox, you have just the division. <laughs> to this day. To this day, it's, yeah. you know, it, it still is. On the North Side, there were the leaders of this organized group that bootlegged. The leader was Dini O'Banion. He was a uh, he was born in America, but his his family was Irish. He was a businessman. I mean, he said it. You know, he said that I am a businessman without a top hat. That's what he did. He there was a void of business, a void of service in Chicago, and he filled that void with providing people with the liquor that they needed. He ran his syndicate out of a flower shop, Schofield's Flower Shop. It was a front for bootlegging. He was an interesting guy. He actually lived kind of a 
a moral code that applied to certain things. And Matt's doing air quotes again. Yeah, yeah. I love the air quotes. He didn't believe in prostitution. He didn't believe in supporting it, even though they the two really went hand in hand at that time. Mm-hmm. Liquor and horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was funny because there was a quote about his flower shop that it, the average order was $100, which back then was a lot. Right. Right, for, for funeral arrangements. And they said for 100 bucks he'd thrown in the body as well. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they, like, he, he killed a ton of people, but his yeah. wife loved him, adored I mean, him. Like, him like, per- he personally killed over 60 people. But yeah, he was a strong family man. It was the archetype of the, well, the I, I feel 30s like, gangster. Well, because you know, all these noble gangster guys kind of fall down. But like he kind of comes across to me like Vito Corleone uh, character in The Godfather. Like the beloved family man yep. with the moral code, things like that. You know, so we'll get into the lieutenants from the north. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a little bit that worked for O'Banion. But uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the south side of okay. Chicago now. So the south side was a little grittier. It was Italian. It wasn't quite as built up as the north. It was younger. It was dirtier. It, it wasn't w- as cosmopolitan. It wasn't as nice. Yeah. No, it wasn't. The leader of the south side gang was Johnny Torrio, was his name. Papa Johnny or the Fox, as they, they called him. He was an Italian. He was really soft-spoken, actually. But ran ran the South Side like a uh, dictator, basically. I mean, what he said went. And he had some lieutenants that just got the job done. They were dirty, and they got the job done. Johnny Torrio was the boss at the time. Prior to Johnny Torrio becoming the boss, the boss was Big Jim Colosimo, who uh, was known as Diamond Jim. He was a big man, also Italian. His real name was actually Giacomo. Uh, first name. Uh, he partnered with Torrio, so he was the face. Torrio got was the brains behind it. He knew what he got things done. He set things up. He's the one that really made the money come forward. Now, Diamond Jim really wanted to focus on prostitution and speakeasies, and um, really didn't see a future in bootlegging. So um, that is where they they differed. Torrio really saw that's where the money was, and. They basically disagreed on this. So Torrio took a big step and and took him out. He actually hired a a buddy of his from New York called uh, Frankie Yale to come out and take out Diamond Jim. Now, that may seem like some extraneous information here, but what's important about saying that is Frankie Yale was an enforcer, a, a very prominent enforcer in Brooklyn. And he was friends with Torrio, who came from New York originally. But there was a young 20-year-old who worked for Frankie Yale named Al Capone who decided that he wasn't moving anywhere in Brooklyn. Al Capone was a tough guy. He was ruthless, and he was smart. And he was loyal. So well, and, and it's easy to villainize these guys, and we will at some point. But you have to understand, a lot of these immigrants did not have a lot of options. Like, and so as a kid, you even mm-hmm. had to be in a gang. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Al Capone, born in Brooklyn f- from Sicilian parents. His parents were honest. They were her. Da- his dad was a barber. His mom was a church-going housewife. They didn't have any part in organized crime. But they lived in a rough part of town, and Adam, as you said, if you wanted to survive, you pretty much had to join a gang. I mean, he was in a kid's gang. Um, at 11, he joined the Italian gang called the South Brooklyn Rippers. Great name. <laughs> That's an awesome Isn't name. it? Yeah. You know, and he, he, he showed almost sociopathic behavior. Like I said, he was loyal, but he was ruthless, and he would do what he, what he needed to do to get things done. 
By the time he was a teenager, he had joined an adult gang and, and moved quickly up through the Five Points gang, which was the big Italian gang in, in New York. Well, no, is that what the, the one that um, Gangs in New York is based off of, like Five Points, that area down yeah. there? Yeah. So if you're, if you're thinking of, of, of that kind of gang mentality, that's what he grew up in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so he was piss and vinegar. You know, he was getting it done. So Al was also known as Al Scarface Capone. He got his name from when he was working as, in the Five Point Gang as a bartender, um, running a, a brothel slash uh, saloon. And he started making lewd advances towards a woman at the bar. Shame. Shame, shame, right? Yeah. Um, unfortunately for him, the woman's brother didn't like what he said and slashed him across the face. From that point on, he had a giant scar on his left cheek. And he and, was known as Scarface. And we also now have a movie starring Al Pacino called mm. Scarface. I mean, oh, yeah, it's, it's, right. a, it's a butterfly effect. Yeah. So anyway, Al Scarface Capone really um, had gotten as far as he was going to get. He wasn't really in charge of anybody. He wasn't moving up in Brooklyn. And Frankie Yale, who he worked for, um, had gone to Chicago and helped Torrio to take out Diamond Jim. Al saw an opportunity there, so he moved to Chicago. Colissimo. Yeah. That's Colissimo, his last name. Yeah. Big Jim Colissimo. <laughs> Nice. Who, by the way, had the mayor in his back pocket in Chicago. Of course. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he, uh, he moved to Chicago. He uh, settled in there and quickly rose to be Johnny Torrio's right-hand man. Now, there was always fighting between the two factions, the north side and the, and the south side. Absolutely. You can't root for the Cubs and the White Sox at the you same time. You cannot. No, and and there was a lot of violence. I mean... I'm curious. You see revolvers, things like that. What were these guys using mostly? Well, this is where the Tommy gun came from. Oh, yes, the Tommy gun. The Tommy gun. Okay. Also known as the Chicago typewriter or the chopper. <laughs> oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Good names, right? Yeah. These guys have the best. If they yeah. just gotten into marketing, all of this could have just gone away. Because they had some really good nicknames for this stuff. Well, you know, the Tommy gun was actually first manufactured for the for use in the military. Uh, as all these are, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, for some reason, and I should know, but I don't know why, they didn't use it. <laughs> so they designed it to bust up trench warfare. World War One was a horrible conflict, and it was defined by a lot of you know, static trench warfare. Right. And the idea was, so that this gun was horrific. I, I mean, it, it had 45 caliber rounds. There, Someone had said at one point it was so accurate that you could write your name in a wall with it. Yeah. Um, so it was just devastating. Um, so the idea was that that would help, you know, break the stalemate in World War One. They produced a ton of these. And by the time World War One was over, uh, there was a, a, a ton a of these of guns. Them. Yeah. You know, and a lot of these were actually, these were pretty prevalent out in the wild, wild west um, to defend your property, to kill whatever you needed to kill. There was an enforcer in, on the north side who actually was from the west. He actually had a ranch in Colorado and uh, had a bunch of these guns and brought them out to, to Dini, and he saw the value in them. I mean, with the, this with a Tommy gun, you could be in, in your car, drive by, open the window, and shoot across and take out anybody you wanted. Yeah. And so it escalated. I mean, this is the gun we know now to be the mafia gun. Right. I mean, in fact, there was a, a lieutenant on the north side named Jack McGurn, known as Jack Machine Gun Gurn. Mm-hmm. And he was known for his skills with the Tommy gun. Okay. He was an enforcer. Um, so there was this war between north side, south side gangs. O'Banion and Torrio were constantly 
at war with each other. The fighting really started to escalate when O'Banion tricked Torrio into pretending to be interested in buying him out in a brewery that was in Chicago. And instead of, and so he set up a time to meet with him. And instead of um, showing up, he turned him into the police that Torrio owned this brewery. And as a result, Torrio ended up going to jail for three years. Yeah, and these breweries, you, you think of the microbrewery that we have now today. These were big operations, right? Capone's was worth $60 million by the time he was really up and running. So the, so buying out a brewery it was a really big deal. Right. Yeah. Um, so as revenge, Torrio ordered the killing of O'Banion, and Capone carried it out. Now, this was a pretty infamous killing. Three enforcers that worked for Capone walked to the floral shop, um, walked up to him, and were pretending to be doing a deal there. Maybe I can do you four, boys? Just deciding. How about I make you up What do you got that says you're sorry and won't ever do it again? Here's a man in need of roses. Roses are for my girlfriend. What do you got for my wife? <laughs> You want chrysanthemums, friend. That get me out of Dutch? If it doesn't, your money back. Deal? Reached out a hand to shake his hand. And once he grabbed his hand, took his other hand and grabbed O'Banion's other arm so he couldn't reach for his gun. And the other two shot and killed him at close range. Oh, wow. So this was really the first murder of that style. Okay. You know, it, before it was out in the open, they were killed by somebody, you, you know, there were, you were, there were witnesses, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, part of it was being visible and having people see it. This was all done in the privacy of the floral shop. Right, okay. So it was a new style. So what happens then? Your boss is dead. Well, some of the lieutenants that um, O'Banion had were some crazy people. There was Jaime Weiss, who was his right-hand man. Um, he was a Polish Catholic. He was very violent and dangerous. I mean, he was a crazy guy. There was Vincent Ferrucci, who was known as the Schemer. Great name, right? Mm -hmm. He was actually the only Italian lieutenant on the north side. And then there was George Bugs Moran, who was tough and a bit crazy. He, he actually idolized Al Capone, even though he was older than Al Capone. He ended up becoming the boss after O'Banion died. And I should say, he actually didn't become the boss until Jaime Weiss and Thurucci were killed in, in this turf war back and forth. And Bugs was not stable. I mean, and, and he wasn't really a smart man, but because O'Banion died and his higher lieutenants were murdered, he ended up becoming the boss of the north side. Meanwhile, on the south side, Johnny Torrio got out um, as revenge against his ordering of O'Banion to be killed. A few of the north side lieutenants tried to take him out. They did not succeed. They, they injured him greatly, but they did not succeed. So Torrio, which you don't hear this a lot, decided actually to leave. He retired. He told Al, Al, you're in charge. Europe is for me. So he retired and moved to Europe. Okay, so he didn't stay in the U.S. He did not. No. He came back in later life, Okay, but he, he moved to Italy. He left a 26-year-old in charge of the Southside gang. Wow. Bootlegging. What is bootlegging? On the boat, it's bootlegging. On Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. <laughs> I'm a businessman. And what of your reputation that you control your business through violence? That those that don't purchase your products are dealt with violently? I grew up in a tough neighborhood. 
And we used to say, you can get further with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. <laughs> and in that neighborhood, it might have been true. And sometimes the reputation follows you. There is violence in Chicago, of course, but not by me and not by anybody I employ. And I'll tell you why, because it's not good business. So at this point, Al Capone is in charge. He's the new boss on the south side. On the north side, as I mentioned, is Bugs, Bugs Moran, who kind of fell into it. This turf war goes back and forth. There's another guy, Angelo Gino, who was a good friend of Al Capone's that was shot down and killed. Um, that was kind of the last straw for Al Capone. And Al Capone made plans to kill Bugs and his crew. So what he did is he staked out this garage that was on North Clark Street for weeks, weeks on end. It wasn't necessarily a main hub of business for the north side, but it it was owned by the north side. They staked it out for three weeks, um, knowing this was the place that they were going to take out Marone and his um, crew. Uh, They planned to do it on St. Valentine's Day, 1929. Because nothing says I love you like mass murder. Like mass murder. Yeah. Like a massacre. And we'll get into that in a second. But so setting the stage for that, it's a crazy cold day. I think the high was like 15 in Chicago. So how long had he been, had he been in charge by this point? Was this like right after he got the promotion? Or? No, he'd been the boss for four years okay. at this point. So now he was 30 years old. Very Fe- mature. Feeling his oats, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this had been, as I mentioned, I just gave one example there with Angelo Gino, but it gone back and forth, lieutenants, enforcers dying back and forth. Right. But to this point, it had always been one murder or one maiming here and there, a shot to the heart or a shot to the head. person was dead. And, and were the territories, I mean, did you know that you don't go over this point or was it pretty fluid and dynamic? Well, you did know, but Madison Street was the divider. Okay. But each side would push. I mean, it wasn't a respected border. Okay. You know, each side would try to push up. If you could go a block up, well, let's keep pushing until you get pushed back right, down. Right, right, right. So traditionally, Madison was the main divider. Okay. This was 1929. It had been going on for four years. All the lieutenants of the North had been killed except Bugs Marone. He was the last one. He was now the boss of the North, as I mentioned. So this site had been scoped out for three weeks. It was a crazy cold day. The night before, someone had tricked Bugs into thinking that there was a truckload of whiskey that they could get for a good deal. So let's meet at this uh, garage on Clark Street. Meanwhile, Capone had all his henchmen set up in apartments that they had rented to um, watch and then move in and take out Marone and his his henchmen. So the day arrives. Capone is actually in Florida that day, and he's meeting with the Dade County Commissioner that day just to have a an alibi, even though he's ordered it. Okay. Bugs is on his way over to the garage. He walks, actually, to the garage, so he doesn't bring attention to himself coming in a car, and as he's walking, he thinks he sees an undercover police car, which there isn't an undercover police car, but he thinks he sees one, so he keeps walking right past the garage and doesn't go in. Um, Meanwhile, all of his henchmen have gone in, and the last henchman to arrive um, is wearing an olive-colored hat and, like, a, I don't know, a tan coat that looks actually exactly like the coat and the hat that Bugs wears. Mm -hmm. One of Capone's henchmen sees him and says, Bugs has entered the building. It's time to make our move. So at that time, two police officers, now I don't know if they were officers or or henchmen dressed up as officers, go in to the garage and have everybody line up 
You know, they're like, we're busting you. Uh, we need to check, you know, make sure you don't have any weapons. So they line everyone up with their hands against a wall, all seven of the people. And as they do that, two more henchmen come in with Tommy guns and just take them all out. Oh, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of bullets to the point that some of them are almost severed in half from all the bullets that cut their bodies. So this is this is like the nuclear option of gang warfare. Yeah, I mean, it's premeditated. It's nasty. Absolutely. It's multiple people. Right. And they're not even armed. Like, it's it's to their backs. Once they fall, at the end, the henchmen go over and look at all the bodies that have fallen to the ground. They see that one guy, a mechanic um, that worked for the north side, is still alive on the ground. And they take a 12-gauge and blow his head off. So it is violent. It's brutal and violent. That's the way it was meant to be. Yep. So what kind of reaction was Al Capone expecting out of this because there had to be one that was the whole point to sever the head of the organization or yes yeah, okay. absolutely it was it was to take out the last lieutenant and all his henchmen so that the north side was gone and al capone is in right, charge now. right so you know right after the killing the henchmen are handcuffed by the fake police and the police lead them out of the uh, garage and take them away and obviously the police whether it was police or henchmen dressed as police let them go so they were gone. So they were either henchmen or they were police on the take. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So a neighbor thinks they hear a car backfire. That's what they said, mm-hmm. even though it was thousands of bullets, right. right? Thousands of backfires. So they go into the garage and see what's happened and call the police, and it, it suddenly becomes news. I mean, not that all these killings weren't news, but this has a different flavor to it. I mean, people were sickened by the event. It, it had crossed some line, which is kind of crazy to think that Killing one person in the head with one bullet doesn't cross the line, but massacring seven people, cutting their bodies in half does cross the line. Well, some of these, a lot of these gangsters were almost idolized by the population, right? And yeah. And there were movies made about them. I mean, them. at the time yeah. there were movies made. Yeah. Gangster movies took off. I hate to keep going back to The Godfather, but the noble, the noble criminal myth. You know, when mm-hmm. The Godfather came out, all the mob guys loved it. Because it portrayed them as these noble guys. And it, my perception, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that the masses looked at these one-off kills as like them just kind of taking care of business. Yep. And like, all oh, those guys are just doing this. And then they deserved it. The public flipped right. after this. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was the mass murder. Not only was it the mass murder, but as I mentioned, there was a mechanic who, who worked for the mob, right? But he was a mechanic. He, he was, was not, not a killer. Yeah. He was not an enforcer, was murdered. An optometrist who wasn't involved in organized crime at all, but just liked to hang out with the gangsters, which is kind of odd, right? But nevertheless, he was an optometrist not involved, was one of the seven that were murdered. Oh. It really turned the tide against them from the public. And to add to that, nobody was ever convicted of the crime. People questioned Al Capone. People questioned his But he's, a, his he, lieutenants. he's in Florida. They knew that he ordered it, right? All of his lieutenants had, had alibis. In fact, one of his right-hand lieutenants was brought in for questioning and was actually charged with the murder. But his wife, um, a blonde, attractive showgirl, now turned wife, um, gave him an alibi that it was Valentine's Day and they'd spent all day in bed. Like you do. Yep. Yeah. She was actually coined by the um, by the media, the blonde alibi. I guess that's a benefit of doing it on St. Valentine's Day, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it, it turned the public against 
organized crime and actually really led to the downfall of both of the leaders. What happened afterwards? So, well, uh, let me tell you. Bugs Moran really, it destroyed his gang. There was nobody left. The North Sides remained for a little while, but it was not nearly as powerful as it was before. He didn't have anybody left. So by the time Prohibition ended, he was broke. He had no money. So in like a 15-year time span, he went from one of the richest people in Chicago to being broke. Mm -hmm. In fact, he turned to petty crime, back to burglary, to make a living. Um, In 1946, he was sentenced to jail for burglary, armed burglary in Ohio. So he'd even moved Mm -hmm. out of Chicago. And he died in prison in 1947. Of cancer, so he didn't necessarily die that day, but his lifestyle—it it it died. Was over. It was yeah. done. Yep. Capone, for his part, actually lived on. He was the boss of Chicago, so he took all the stills. I mean, so he took the North Side stills. No, nope. no, nope. there was still a North Side. I would say he gained some ground, but there was still a North Side. It just wasn't as powerful. You have to understand the public was against this, and it really turned people against doing business with them, to be honest. Right, And this was 1929. The government was looking to get Al Capone. Two years later, they did get him, but they brought him down for tax evasion. Now handcuffed to a car thief, he is being removed from the scene of his underworld empire to a jail in the southern state of Georgia. And this not for murder, vice, conspiracy, or even bootlegging, but for failing to render a true income tax return. That's all they could get him on. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. But it took him out of Chicago. I mean, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He actually had syphilis that was untreated, which is kind of bad. Well, no, that's a bad disease. (laughs) Yeah, and the syphilis actually gave him dementia. So he was actually released early in 1939, eight years in, because he was his mind was gone. He was not the same person. You know, he moved back to his Florida home. He was still the boss. In name only? In name only. Yeah. You know, his lieutenants had taken over and now ran the business in Chicago. In 1947, he died of heart failure in Florida. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing just the, the stranglehold he had. I mean, you, you wonder what would have happened had he been on his game after Prohibition went out. I mean, what, right. what would he have done? I mean, obviously gambling, prostitution still. But, you know, Prohibition just kind of gave these – and kind of made these guys. You see Boardwalk Empire. I mean, that's a good show about prohibition um, and the war and things like that that happened there. And if you haven't checked that out on HBO, it's a great show. But uh, anyway, so the the public kind of had it with this, huh? Yep. Prohibition wasn't working. Americans wanted their drinks, right? Um, And they were getting them one way or another. Everyone was looking the other way. So the law wasn't even working. Not only that, economically, it wasn't working for the government. Nope. You know, they were losing all this revenue from alcohol sales. Yeah. which I think you had, you had said previously at one point it was one-fourth of all of yeah. the revenue of the U.S. government. Yeah, but governments, they never have enough, right? The government wasn't the government we have today. So they needed more revenue to do things like railroads and, and all the uh, all the programs that the government wanted to do. Taxing liquor became a very easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. People love sin taxes, right? It's easy to get those passed. So anyway, the uh, 21st Amendment was passed on December 5th, uh, 1933. This is the day we have long hoped for. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. We are all happy. Let us drink to a further liberation of the American people. Happy to their to their further income and taxes and to the success of America. Happy days are Salute I wonder how much of that was, Depression was on, because the stock market yeah. crash had happened, 
and we just needed a drink again. You know, and, and in reading about it, it's not like it was a big movement. It was really an individual movement, um, this wet opposition. Mm-hmm. People really focused on personal liberty now. Mm-hmm. You can make your own choices. As we mentioned, the, the new tax revenue and, you know, coming back to our American moment, they wanted to get rid of organized crime. This St. Valentine's Day massacre really showed how deadly and how horrific, horrific that's a good word, yeah. thank you, horrific organized crime was. You know, the glossy Hollywood version of it had really been replaced with the reality that this is horrible. Yeah, after this point, the emperor had no clothes, right? The, yeah. whole, the whole myth about the noble gangster. And after this point, the government took this story and ran with it and made the most out of it. Right. You know, I just wanted to say kind of some of the impacts of, of all of this, really. You know, alcohol, after the 21st Amendment passed, really lost the stigma associated with it. There was a very puritanical view of alcohol, mm-hmm. that it was a sin, and that really went away after the, the repeal of it. And an interesting point, after the 21st Amendment passed, alcohol rates actually went down in the country. Really? Yeah. Yep, for about 20 years. And they started to go back up, but I think um, it's one of those things that if it's readily available, I don't want it as much. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see the same thing with marijuana. Yeah, you wonder. Yeah, I mean, the parallels are fascinating. Well, who knows what's going to happen with that. Yeah, uh, who knows. Anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, th- thank you for listening, guys. Uh, we really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, guys. If you want to help us out, uh, you can go on iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And as usual, if uh, if you do a rating and, and do a review, uh, send me a message on Facebook. And I will, uh, I'll send you a gift card. We, you can never have enough Starbucks. <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter at, at Adam Vanami, A-D-A-M-V-O-N-N-A-H-M-E, or find us on Facebook at America Moments Podcast. April the 7th is here, and it's a real occasion for thankfulness, marking a newfound freedom for the American people, made possible by the wisdom, foresight, and courage of a great president with the cooperation of an understanding Congress. There is a song in our hearts that happy days are here again. And they are here again. For out of a maze of confusion and anxiety has come a beacon light to guide the way to better times.